Amen. You can be seated. If you've got a Bible with you, hopefully you do, take it and turn to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is near the end of the Old Testament. It's the fourth book from the end of the Old Testament. And so um, if that helps you finding it, then good for you. If it doesn't, then the table of contents is there. Or if you didn't bring a Bible with you or you would like to use the one in the pew that is from the same uh, translation that I'll be using, um, it is the black one in the pew. It is page 835. But Zephaniah chapter 3 is where we're actually going to start. There are only three chapters to it. We're going to start in chapter 3. We're going to finish somewhere else, but we're going to start in chapter 3 because... Zephaniah chapter 3 has one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Zephaniah chapter 3 has one of the greatest proclamations of the love of God in the entire Bible. And what's interesting is it comes in the midst, we're going to see this, of a book that's not really that hopeful, but you have one of the most enduring promises in all of Scripture in Zephaniah chapter 3. Now, we don't know a whole lot about this prophet. We know that he was, it tells us in the beginning, kind of four generations, and it traces it all the way back to a guy named Hezekiah. Now, that was a a fairly common name, but there was a famous king that was there. And so we think that this prophet is a descendant of the king, but instead of continuing in that realm, that he became a prophet of God. And in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 There is a verse that describes God's love in a very personal way that I think is just astonishing. This is what it says, Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will delight in you with singing. The Lord your God is among you. A warrior who saves. He'll rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you or be quiet in his love for you. And he will delight in you with singing. Now just so you know, that statement is in the midst of a broader context we're going to read a little bit of in just a moment. Where God is restoring the nation of Israel and the people of God throughout the earth. It's a statement of what was to come eventually in the nation of Israel. But more than that, it was a statement of what was to happen or what will yet happen for us when Christ returns and God sets everything straight. He tells us that in that moment, we can take courage. We can take safety. We can take encouragement from the fact that the Lord our God is with us. And he is a warrior God who is mighty to save. Now here's what I want us to understand about this particular verse. And then we're going to talk about the broader context. Is that there are some descriptions of God in here that ought to draw all of us towards him. And get us into a place where we understand the depth of his love and what is happening there. And when it says there that, first of all, the Lord your God, we need to understand that what's happening here is it's reminding us that the God that we serve is not a distant creation. He's not someone that sits back at afar. He's not someone that is not personal to us, that we serve a personal God who knows us by name, who cares for us, who knows everything about us and still loves us. The phrase, your God there, is important because it reminds us that this is not a God. This is not even the God. This is not most high God. This is your God. 
The prophet Zephaniah is telling the people of God, remember, this is a God that wants to be on your side, that encourages us to have a personal relationship with him. When I think about um, one of my favorite chapters of Scripture, Psalm 23, I'm reminded again and again of the amount of times it says over and over in there that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. That the Lord causes me to lie down in green pastures. Again and again, it reminds us of how important it is that our relationship with the Lord, with a personal God. I read this week a, a story that's been told for for years by preachers, so it's probably not true, but it at least has a good point to it, all right? And the story is told that there was a great actor and a great preacher that met each other at an event. And as they at the event, it was one of those things where people were talking and milling around and they had a platform where people could stand. And they said, man, it would be great if we could hear both of you, maybe even do the same thing. Like they just started talking, like, what could we do that would be similar or that we could play off each other? And so they settled on Psalm 23. They settled on that great psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. And so they said, all right, well, let's do it. Actor, you go first. And so the actor, this world-trained thespian, got up and began to um, really describe the Lord as my shepherd using theatrical voice and inflection. And he talked about it in ways that was impressive. And it was something that the crowd was, was listening to in awe of his ability to make words come alive. The diction that was there, the pronunciation, it was all technically perfect. And at the end of it, they said, we've never heard it that way before. And then the preacher got up. And the preacher wasn't as eloquent. He wasn't as um, trained as the actor. But as he went through the psalm, a different reaction began to emerge. And instead of people being overwhelmed by the eloquence of his act... They were moved by his emotion. And by the end of the Psalm 23 recitation, he was almost to the point of tears. People in the crowd did not give thunderous applause. They gave kind of a smattering of applause. But there was also some wiping and some sniffling. And at the end of it, the actor came up to him and he said, I would love to be able to move audiences with emotion like you did. And the pastor just looked at him and said, there's a difference between what you did and what I did. He said, the difference is, you know the psalm, I know the shepherd. One of the most amazing things to me about the God we serve is that he is unbelievably powerful, he is unbelievably strong, and yet he knows my name. There are some of you in this room that live a life where you feel like nobody ever really knows you. Like nobody ever really understands you. Nobody ever really knows who you are or what you're thinking or how you're feeling. You feel like at work you get passed over for stuff. You feel like in the world that other people seem to jump ahead of and you don't understand how or why. That you don't get recognized for who you are. And yet we serve a God who holds the universe in balance and yet he knows us. Scripture describes it and you've heard this. That he knows the very number of hairs on your head. Now... Some people, that's easier than others. He knows us. The Lord, your God. And then it says, the Lord, your God. Not only does he know us by name, but he says he is among you. He is with us. He is right here in the midst of life with us. He is walking with us. He is walking through our difficulties. He is rejoicing with us in our celebrations. He is celebrating with us. He is in the midst of our lives 
intimately involved with the details of who we are. He knows how hard it was to get up this morning or how excited you were to get up. He knows about that phone call on Friday night. He knows about that voicemail that you got or that test message that really tempted you to go one way or really disrupted your life. Because he's walking with you in the midst of it. He just doesn't know your name. He knows everything about you. He loves to walk with you through life. That same Psalm 23, my favorite part of that says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. You are walking with me. And Zephaniah is telling the people of God, listen, trouble's coming, difficulty's coming, but if you trust in him, if you trust him, if you walk with him, he, your God, will walk with you. And he's big enough to handle anything that comes our way. I love the phrase here. He is a warrior. Now, my guess is when people ask you to describe God, when people say, what are some adjectives to describe who God is? Warrior is not at the top of your list. Like love, compassion, forgiving, just, righteous, holy. Like one of the first words that comes to your mind is not the word warrior. And yet the Old Testament again and again and again reminds us that God is a powerful warrior. When the people get delivered from Egypt and they're on the other side of the Red Sea, when they declare who God is in that moment, they look at the most powerful army on earth that has just been flooded in the middle of the Red Sea and defeated by a God that moved the wind and the waves, and they say, our God is a warrior. And I think sometimes we fail to recognize the power of the God we serve when we fail to recognize the fact that he is a warrior who is fighting a war against evil and the enemy of our souls, and he is powerful enough to end it all at any moment. Like there is nothing that is in the same league or the same match as our God. And then it tells us this, the Lord your God is among you a warrior. Let me just tell you, if that were where it stopped, that would not necessarily be comforting news. If we just served a God who was the powerful warrior who was among us, if you just knew you had a God that knew everything about you, that knew every thought you'd had, that knew every time you had talked, every word you had spoken, every time you had had a conversation with somebody, the things that you had thought underneath the conversation, if you had a God that knew everywhere you had ever visited, everything you had ever done, everywhere you had ever been, and he was a holy and righteous and just warrior God, and he walked among you and knew you, that is not necessarily good news. In fact, that is not good news at all, unless he's a God who saves. So Zephaniah in chapter 3 verse 17 says that we have a God who is with us, that is personal to us, that is a warrior fighting, and he saves, he pardons, he forgives. He then goes on to talk about how he really feels about us. And this is the part that just blows me away. He says that this God that we serve will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. And he will delight in you with singing. He rejoices over you. The God of creation, the God that holds the worlds together, the God of the universe, the God most high, God most powerful, rejoices, sings, celebrates you. 
In fact, there's an important part here where it talks about he celebrates us, delights in us in his singing. And we'll talk about that in detail in just a moment. But the reality is that singing touches parts of our soul that other things, other activities just never do. That music has a way to unlocking the entirety of our emotions, of who we are, of what's happening. I don't know if you've ever seen this or or, or seen anybody do this, but you ever watched a movie when they took all the score away, all the music away? Like sometimes on YouTube or something, they'll post a video, and it's the movie, and it's got just all the sounds behind it out. So the dialogue's still happening, but the music underneath it is gone. And it is remarkable the difference that that underneath sound makes. We all have different kinds of music we like for different kinds of parts of our lives. Occasionally I make it to a, a Planet Fitness to work out a little bit. And when I'm there, people have on headphones. And my guess is, in their headphones, they're not playing Simon and Garfunkel. Now, I like Simon and Garfunkel. Some of you don't know who Simon and Garfunkel are. That's your pro- all right? That's your fault, all right? But they're not playing Scarborough Fair, Sound of Silence, right? Maybe Cecilia, but I doubt it, right? What do they got? They got stuff that's going to get them hyped, get them going, get them really, really pumped up for working out. Because most of us don't want to be there in the first place. And we're hating every moment that we're there. So we need something to get us through it. At the same time, if there's a moment when a guy really likes a girl and he wants to kind of set the mood that he likes her, he's probably not playing death metal. Although there are some relationships where that might work. Like music sets the tone. And what it says here about God's love for us, it literally says on that last line that he will delight in you with singing, that he is jumping up and down, spinning around, shouting praises at the top of his lungs about how much he loves you. Why don't you just think about these verses for a moment? The fact that the God of the universe is personal to you, knows everything about you, and still delights and sings over you. I think about um, a verse that came to mind for some reason this week God brought to mind was Philippians chapter 2. That great hymn of the faith about Jesus that let this mind be also in you that was also in Christ Jesus that even though he was equal with God he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but gave that up and became a servant, became obedient None just become obedient. He became obedient unto death on the cross. And at the end of that whole passage, it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And for whatever reason, this week God brought that verse to mind, and he said to me, just to kind of in that discussion, or as I was thinking through it, I was thinking through, what exactly is that joy? When it says... Because of the joy that was set before him. Or with mind to the joy that is set before him. As he's thinking about the joy set before him. Enduring the cross. Scorning and shame. Sat down at the right hand of the Father. Accomplished what he called to do. What is that joy? And there are lots of things I think could be in that. I think it is accomplishing God's will in his life. I think it's finishing off what God's called him to do. I think it's the glory that he's going to bring to the Father by his death. I think it's the defeat of Satan and his enemies. I think it's the defeat of death and all that is there. I think it is the reality that he is ushering in a new era when he is going to make the world right. Like, I think that's all in the joy. But here's what I'm convinced is in the joy. I'm convinced that when he says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, that I am convinced that the word joy there could be replaced with you. 
For the love he has for you that was before him, he endured the cross. And what I think is crazy about that, just to be real honest, is not that he endured the cross just, I mean, that's, that's crazy in itself for me, but that he did it because of the joy that would come in a relationship with me and him, with you and God. Chapter 3, verse 17 in the book of Zephaniah is one of the most amazing passages of Scripture in the whole Bible. And it's set in the midst of a whole chapter. This isn't going to be on the screen, but in the whole chapter he talks about restoring people. He talks about restoring the nations. He talks about the fact that he is going to bring a place where discord and conflict will vanish from the earth. That there will be no more discord, there will be no more conflict, that there will be complete unity there. That in a world that seems like it is constantly in conflict, that God is going to set it right and that conflict will be gone. It's hard for us to imagine because we live in an age of conflict. Someone has said that our social media and our news have given way to a perpetual outrage machine where we just want to be upset about something all the time. Where we complain about sports or we complain about politics. We complain about the local store. We complain about what we didn't get at the service. We complain, we complain, we complain. We talk, we divide all the time. Our political system has devolved into this thing that is name-calling and accusations that is meant not to solve any real problems we have, but simply to make us hate the other side. I saw a statement online yesterday that said, if your political affiliation has led you to a point where you see people on the other side of the aisle as enemies to be defeated instead of people made in the image of God, then you have gotten off track. And that's what our whole political system's about. And Zephaniah 3 says that one day God's going to set it right. And there will be no more conflict. He tells us he's going to do that by the fact that he's going to purify our words. How many times in your life has conflict come because of words that you've said? How many times in your life has conflict come because of something somebody said to you? You remember the old phrase as a kid, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You know what we call that? Baloney. It's a lie. Everybody in this room has been hurt by somebody else's words. Everybody in this room has hurt someone with your words. Maybe more appropriately, it's sticks and stones may break my bones, but words hurt me to the soul. They do. They cut. How many times have you wished you could capture words because you realize that if you just hadn't said anything, the conflict would have probably been over? Anybody here have a um, spouse? Anybody here? Okay, a couple of you. Good. It's good to know. The rest of you just sitting with strangers. That's good to know. All right. Some of you have spouses. Anybody here have family, like brothers, sisters, all right? Anybody, anybody here have friends, all right? Okay, good. Hopefully everybody raised their hand. If not, I'll, I'll be glad to have a conversation with you afterwards, all right? Anybody in one of those relationships, spouse relationship, brother, sister, in the midst of a discussion, we'll call it, and something comes out of your mouth and you realize that you have just elongated that discussion for 30 more minutes? That if you just wouldn't have said anything... That it was probably over, but you could not avoid the parting shot, you thought. And as soon as it comes out of your mouth, you're like, oh, 
Anybody ever been there? Yeah, you're not, some of you are not raising your hands. You're just looking at me. All right. Luke's been there, right, with me. Good. Uh, like, our words. When Isaiah comes in contact with the Lord, and I wonder how many of us would be the same, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up in all of his majesty, he says, I am a man of unclean lips. Zephaniah says one day God's going to make all that clean. He's going to purify our speech. He's going to unify us. He's going to humble us. He's going to take away all of our shame. He says in here in chapter 3 that your stuff that you have done, that you have walked against me, is not going to be remembered. I'm going to bring about a time when your shame will be gone. And there are multiple times in our lives when we cause problems with other people because we're really upset with what we're doing. When the shame and guilt in our own lives won't let us just live and so we project that on other people and we hurt other people because of how we feel about ourselves. Zephaniah says, listen, there's coming a day when God's going to set everything straight. When we're going to have our lips purified, there's going to be unity. There's not going to be conflict. There's not going to be worry. There's not going to be shame. And our God who is with us is going to fight for us and he's going to redeem us and he's going to make it right. He even says he's going to go take those that have been outcasts. He's going to bring them into the family. He's going to take those that have been persecuted. He's going to make it right. He is going to make our name great among the nations because his name is great among the nations. In fact, Zephaniah ends with verse 20, and this won't be on the screen, but just listen. At that time, I will bring you back. Yes, at that time, I will gather you. He's saying, there's coming a day when disbursement's going to happen. I'm going to bring you together. I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth. They're going to realize you're right because you followed me. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, the Lord has spoken. Now that last little phrase, the Lord has spoken, is very important because when that is there in Scripture, it means that these are the words of the Lord and they will happen. So for those that are followers of Jesus Christ, that are followers of God, there is coming a day when everything will be restored. But here's the important part of Zephaniah. Chapter 3 is one of the most hopeful chapters in the whole Bible especially the last verses from 9 and following. But before that, it is all destruction and decay. And Zephaniah comes to the people of God, the people that should be following God, the church on Sunday morning, and he says, be careful because you are in danger of thinking you're following God when you're not. And if you don't have a relationship with God, if you are not seeking Him, then your end is not chapter 3. Your end is destruction. You ever watch one of those television shows where like, it starts off with some sort of cliffhanger, the first five minutes are a cliffhanger, and then it puts up the words like 18 hours earlier? Or two days beforehand? And all of a sudden you're like taken back to find out how you got to that point. Well, that's what I want to do in the next 10 minutes is take you back to figure out how we got to that point. Because in Zephaniah chapter 1, he says the default place for you to go is not that place of restoration and hope. It is on your current track to destruction. 
Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. Now we mentioned Josiah last week. Just so you know, we don't know when this is in the reign of Josiah. Josiah actually lived um, or reigned from a time of about 640 B.C. all the way up to like 609 B.C. Um, And he took the throne, this is the king that took the throne at eight years old. I don't know how, how effective an eight-year-old king would be. Um, I have in my house a girl that turned seven this week and a girl that is nine. I wouldn't turn over running the house to them. Maybe Ava soon, but not yet. Imagine turning over a country to them. Anybody here have eight-year-olds? Anybody here ever had an eight-year-old? In the first service, I said, we have any eight-year-olds in the service? And Izzy Castro raised her hand. And so afterwards, she came up to me and she goes, you're saying I'm the queen of the world. I said, that is not what I'm declaring. But you can imagine. And I bet it'd be fun. Like if, if Ava was in charge of the world, it'd be fun. Like there would be no responsibility for stuff, but it'd be a great time. We'd have um, cake, ice cream at every meal, you know, it'd be mandatory like, just buy what you want, whatever panda stuff's out there. We just buy it. Just don't worry about it. It's just fun, right? The amazing thing about Josiah is by the time he ends his reign, he is one of the greatest kings Judah ever had. At some point during his reign, a priest comes on 18 years into his reign, so when he's 26 years old, and he says, hey, man, I was in the temple, and, like, I found this thing, and it, like, tells us what we're supposed to do. So they get the scroll out, and he reads it to the people, and they like they say, man, we're not supposed to have idols in the worship center. We may need to get those out. And so they take those out, and there's some priests that are taking advantage of people. Let's get rid of those, and we're going to tell people what the law of God says. And so in the midst of all that, Zephaniah is speaking alongside Josiah, and he tells them, listen, this is what's about to happen. Chapter 1, verse 2 says this, I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. He says, you are going down a path of destruction, and if you don't watch out, it's coming. I will sweep away people and animals and birds of the sky and fish of the sea and ruins with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. And so we see all that beautiful picture at the end of chapter 3. We're like, man, that's awesome. But Zephaniah comes to him and says, that's not where you're headed right now. Where you're headed is the whole earth to be destroyed. You're going to be caught up in it, and it's going to go away. The imagery here is similar to the imagery used in the Old Testament when it describes the flood that happened for Noah, when it destroyed everything on the earth, but God's remnant, God's protected ones. In fact, in verse 4, he says, I will stretch out my hand against you, Judah, against my people, because of what you have done. It's interesting because that same phrase is the phrase that was used to describe how God saved them from the Egyptians, that he will stretch out his hand. But this time, instead of God stretching out his hand to save, God is stretching out his hand to judge. Well, what was their problem? Well, he gives us two big categories. First of all, there were people that thought they could worship God, show up on Saturday, show up on Sunday, do what God asked them to do in the temple, do what he asked them to do in the synagogue, and then live however they wanted the rest of the week. In fact, there were people that thought they could worship God in a certain way and then have an idol in their house that they worshiped as well, and everything would be fine. And God says, I am bringing destruction upon you because you try to hold on to the things of this world too closely instead of giving complete allegiance to me. 
Listen, I don't think any of us in this room, it talks about bales and it talks about kings. I don't think any of us in this room have an issue with an actual idol being stuck in our room that we may bow down to and worship. And maybe you do, but my guess is nobody does in this room. And if what we have a problem with is not so much the physical thing that we're worshiping, it is the things of our lives that we cannot live without, that we cannot go without, that we are worshiping in that way. Things like technology and things like money, things like relationships, things like our careers and our business and our ability to do what we want to do, to live how we want to live, to act like we want to act, to do all of those things. And we say, God, I want to follow you. I want to be a part of your life. Yes, I'll show up at church on Sunday. Yes, I'll read my Bible occasionally. But I still want to do what I want to do. I still want to go this way and have this opportunity. He says to the people of Judah, Judah, you have tried to follow me, but you still got people going up on their roofs and worshiping the stars. You got people worshiping Baal in their house, and you are worshiping other people and other things that get you through the day. Then he said the second group of people that he is upset with and that he's bringing destruction upon are not people that are openly worshiping other gods, but they are people that act as if God has no impact on their daily life. That they can sing all the songs, they can quote the Bible verses, but the decisions they make in life, the way they live every day, is completely distant from their relationship with God. Zephaniah says, I know that part in chapter 3, you're going to be really excited about that, but that's not where you're headed because you don't have a relationship with God that is real. There are a lot of people living in the United States of America that think they have a relationship with God, and they don't. They have a relationship with God-like things. They have a relationship with the church, with the background, with the history, with the family heritage, with their idea of who God is, that they brought in places from all over the place. Um, he talks about bringing in ideas about who he is from different areas. And so we have people that read the Bible occasionally, but the Facebook wisdom and Twitter wisdom, they put that into their understanding of God. And whatever book Oprah's recommending this month about the secrets or the closed places or whatever, and you put that into it and you bring it all together. It's like a cafeteria meal that you just kind of mix together and you think there it is but it's not biblical understanding of God and it's definitely not a personal relationship with him and Zephaniah is basically telling the people you think you're good because of who you are and where you grew up but it is truth that a relationship with God is the only thing that brings you cover and so the question becomes is there any hope for those people that have been following that path to get to chapter 3 and he gives that to us in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and then we're done. He calls them and says, gather yourselves together. Gather together, undesirable nation. Like, I think it's just interesting. He says, you're still undesirable. You're a people that are not doing what I've asked you to do. Get together. Before the decree takes effect and the day passes like chaff, before the burning of the Lord's anger overtakes you, before the day of the Lord's anger overtakes you. He says, it's now. Now is decision time. Now is the time to get together. Josiah's bringing these reforms. I'm preaching it to you. Get right now before it gets to the place that it's too late. Let me just tell you right now, if you're in this room, there is a day coming when judgment will come for you. It is either going to be when Christ returns, and my prayer is that he returns quickly. So either it's going to be when Christ returns, or it's going to be when you die. But one of those two days is coming, and it's coming more rapidly than you can imagine. And at that moment, it's too late. And then what Zephaniah says is get your stuff in order, get it together before that day happens. And then he tells them how to get it together. He tells them, seek the Lord 
All you humble of the earth who carry out what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. He says, seek the Lord. Can I tell you something kind of cool in this verse? Go back to that verse, Josh. Something kind of cool in this verse about the name. Just so you know, the name Zephaniah is kind of a different name. It means the Lord hides. Now, when I first saw that, I thought, oh, like the the Lord hides from us. Like the Lord is being distant. Like the Lord is not being near. That's not what it means. Another understanding of it is the Lord conceals. The whole point of this book, the whole point of this prophet is this, that if you will turn to the Lord and seek Him and a personal relationship with Him, if you will seek Him with all your heart, then when that judgment comes, when that day comes that you need to be covered, that you need to be sealed, that you need to be concealed, that God will do it for you. There's nothing you can do for yourself except to trust Him. Perhaps. That doesn't mean like maybe. That means you will be if you trust the Lord. Protected on that day. That day is coming for all of us. And the question is, are you in Zephaniah 1 or are you in Zephaniah 3? Are you someone that's tried to do it on your own and you've tried to mix in other stuff? And maybe you even grew up in a church. Maybe even you walked it out. Maybe you even got baptized. But it wasn't a real relationship with the Lord. It was just going through the motions. Or maybe you've never even come close to that. Like I talk about that, you don't even know what that means. But you've never given your life. You've never accepted the forgiveness that Jesus brought when he died on the cross for your sins. And today's the day to make that decision. Zephaniah would tell the people, don't delay. Delaying is deciding not to follow. Maybe you're here and you're on the other end. You've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you realize that there are some things in your life that are keeping you from fully living out what God's called you to live. And today's the day to let go of that. We're going to have a time of response in just a moment. And I'm just going to ask you, if the Lord is speaking to your heart and it's the day for you to come and to give your life to Jesus Christ, to accept His forgiveness for the first time. If it's the day for you, you say, maybe this is the place that God's calling me. I want to be a part of this church. I've been coming for a little bit. I'd like to do that. Or it's my first time and I want to talk about that. Maybe you just need to come and pray here at the front that God would show you what it would look like to follow Him completely. Just a moment after I pray during our time of response, I'm going to ask you to come. Let's pray together.